0: Welcome. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Um, this is of course a holiday weekend and I'm glad you decided to take part of your holiday weekend and spend it with us here at Southside. Uh, we have a very special picture of the week this week. I want to share with you, uh, in celebration of the 4th of July. This is July 2, one of our, uh, members of our Corinne congregation. Uh, he was sworn in as an American citizen just a few weeks ago and, uh, and we are so, yeah, you can clap for that. That's awesome. Awesome. Um, so July 2, uh, on July 5, celebrating July 4. So it's, it's a, it's a, it, you couldn't plan it any better than that. But we are so excited for July and our Corinne congregation. And uh, if you are not aware, on Monday evenings, uh, beginning in the fall and going through the school year, we have a program on Monday nights where we do ESL, English as a Second Language, and we also have uh, citizenship classes. And if you're interested in being involved in that ministry at all, you want to help with childcare, bring snacks, uh, be a teacher's association assistant, teach, be a teacher yourself in ESL or citizenship, we would love to give you some more information about that. Uh, it's a wonderful program. It's making a lasting impact, not just in the lives of people here at our church, but really in our community, and we'd, we'd be glad to share that with you. On that communication card uh, that Sarah told you about earlier, you could just make a note down there that, hey, give me some information on ESL, and we'd be glad to give you, get you in touch with Susan Russo, who directs that program for us, uh, because they are beginning to put things together for the fall and looking for volunteers. And it's a great way to uh, to serve. But I'm really glad you're here. And you know, I, I, obviously, somebody becoming a citizen of the United States on the Fourth of July weekend—what a great way to celebrate! But it, it's also a reminder to me of the freedom that we so often take for granted here—that we can gather in this place to worship freely, uh, to proclaim our faith, and to share our faith. And uh, and we we take that for granted when so many people around the world don't have that freedom. And that freedom came at a great cost to so many who gave their lives, paid the ultimate price so that you and I could enjoy this freedom. And it, 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 it obligates us to not only enjoy the freedom, but also to leverage that freedom ultimately for the good of others. And so, uh, you know, I'm reminded as I was reading through just some some things into this past week about different wars that have been fought, every generation has paid a price for that freedom. And there was a quote that uh, that. Got my attention, and it's a saying that you've heard before. I tried to figure out who first said it, and nobody really knows. But it's this statement that there are no atheists in foxholes. Have you ever heard that? The idea that that when a soldier is in a desperate situation, uh, they're going to pray out to somebody. That suddenly there is a god somewhere that they hope is is listening to them. I, I think that's probably true. If you look back through American history, you can find that the times of our greatest crises, uh, people sort of rally around the idea of God and seek out God. It wasn't that many years ago, just about 14 years ago. Do you remember all the United States Congress on the steps of, uh, of the Capitol building singing God bless America? And it, that wasn't that long ago. But every time we find ourselves in a desperate situation as a country, we, we turn back to God. That's the story of Israel in the, in the Old Testament, that, that they find themselves in tough spots. And those desperate situations draw them back to God. Because that's what desperation does. It causes us to seek after God. And it doesn't have to be a national crisis. It can just be a crisis in your own family or even in your own life. Many of you have had this happen. Uh, students, you, you, you face a test, you know, maybe you studied for it, maybe you didn't. But suddenly, whether you believe in God or not, you're praying, Lord, if there is any greater wisdom, please give it to me right now as I take this test. And there are no atheists before big exams either. You could sort of translate that. But more serious than that, uh, some of you have been in financial situations and financial crises, and that desperation has caused you to cry out and say, God, if you are a provider, I pray that you provide for me in this situation. Some of you have experienced it in terms of medical situations where uh, there's just a desperate medical situation, and that desperation caused you to cry out to God because maybe doctors didn't have an answer for you. Medicine wasn't solving the problem, and so it causes you to seek something higher than medical uh, counsel and medical advice. Uh, Maybe it was in a difficult relationship. Relationship, a marriage problem, a problem with your kids, and you found yourself, you know, there was no help. There seemed to be no help for the situation. And so out of desperation, you cried out to God. And, and I wonder if you can think maybe in your own story, a time where your desperation caused you to cry out to God because there was no other hope. There was no other help available to you. We can all think in our lives of a time, if, if you're old enough, we can all think of, our, of a time in our lives where desperation led us to cry out to God. And I want to share a principle with you this morning that we're going to look at from John chapter 6, because I think this is true, and this is not an easy teaching. This is, this is a difficult thing, and, but I think it's an important thing for you to know. And it's actually a statement that I took from another famous pastor in the United United States, but I replaced a key word in it because I think this is accurate. And it, the statement is this, God is most glorified in me when I am most desperate for him. God is most glorified in me when I'm most desperate for him. And you think, well, that doesn't sound good. I mean, I, I, I wish that were different, but, but I know in my own situation, in my own life, that, that many times my desperation led to God's glory in a significant way. That, that God showed up or answered a prayer in, in a remarkable way, and he got the glory because of my desperate situation. But there was a, there was a, a reciprocal blessing that came from that as well. As, as God was glorified through my desperation, some of the deepest needs of my soul were met in him that would have never been met in any other solution. They would have never been met in a bigger check coming into the bank account, in a resolution to the relationship problem, in a better medical diagnosis. Uh, in, in a passing grade on a test, that God is most glorified in me when I am most desperate for him. So I want to look at a situation uh, in the Bible, John chapter 6. If you have a Bible and you're open, you've opened there, it's a very familiar story, which is good on a holiday weekend because you all are probably zoning already zoning out. That's why I want to give you the point. If, you, if, you are, if you're not with me, uh, just know God is glorified in your desperation, John chapter six, and maybe come back and read it later or listen to the podcast. But John chapter six is the story of the feeding of the five thousand Now of course, there were more than five thousand people that were fed that day. Uh, there were five thousand men, which means that there were probably fifteen to twenty thousand people that had gathered, which is a huge crowd by today 's standards, but in, in this day and age it was, it was probably one of the largest crowds that had ever gathered i mean it was it would have been record breaking the interesting thing about this story is that this is the only miracle uh, that precedes the resurrection of jesus that is told in all four Gospels. Your, your Bible has four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story, just like if you had four witnesses of any event, they all tell the story from a little different perspective. And so some of them choose to include some stories that others don't include. But this story, this, this event, the feeding of the 5,000 was included by all four, which tells us that there is something really, really significant and important about this miracle, because all four witnesses recognize the importance of it. So I want us to look at it. If you have a Bible, hopefully you've already found John chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 1. Sometime after this, now after this means what happened in chapter 5, uh, and which was Jesus heals the, the man by the pool of Bethesda. So sometime later, we don't know how much longer, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because, because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Now, we know that John is very selective about the miracles he chooses to report. And he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs because they're pointing to who Jesus is. And so Jesus would have performed other miracles. John doesn't record them, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do record some of them. And so Jesus is drawing a crowd. The crowd is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they are following him. John wants you to know they are following him because of these miraculous signs. Then Jesus went up onto the mountainside and sat down with his disciples... The Jewish Passover feast was near. Now, whenever John, the the, the gospel writer John, says the Jewish Passover was near, near, he is basically shining neon lights on this. What's getting ready to happen is really important. So not only do do we have the story told in all four gospels, which means it's really important, John uses his key, you know, his secret code to tell you it's important by saying this happened, the Passover feast was about to happen. John only says this three times. He said it the first time, uh, right before Jesus cleansed the temple in chapter 2, he's going to say it again right before Jesus is crucified. And this is the second time he says it. So, so it's really significant uh, that he said that. So verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip. Now here comes a question. And remember, I've, I've, we've talked about this many times. You've heard me say it before you should underline, highlight, mark every question that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Because Jesus never asks a question because he needs information. He doesn't. He asks a question because there's something, there's something important that he wants to reveal or show. So here, he's about to ask a question. Where shall we buy bread For these people to eat. And then John actually tells us that he didn't need to ask the question, verse six. He asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was about to do. So John sort of says, Okay, this is a test that while Jesus is is asking this question, because Jesus asked question to test the faith of his audience. That's why he asks every time. And it's not just the audience who originally heard the question, it's us, because we're in the audience too. So this is a really important question, not just for the disciples, not just for Philip in particular, but but for us today. And and here's here's where it gets to the point I I want to ask you a difficult question, because it would seem to me, based on this encounter and other encounters, that it's important for us to consider this question. Did Jesus intentionally put Philip and Andrew, who's standing there, and the disciples and all of his disciples in desperate situations? Is that what Jesus did? Did, did, he, did he intentionally seek to put them in situations that were impossible apart from what he was going to do? The reason I ask is because next week we're going to look at what happens after this. And in that passage of scripture, Jesus is going to tell his disciples to get into a boat and to row to the other side of this lake at night in the middle of a storm that's coming. Jesus knows the storm's coming. Jesus knows it's nighttime and that that is not the best time to be out on the water. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat and row to the other side. Here, Jesus has gathered a crowd. They're all gathering around. And Jesus says, hey, Philip, how are you going to feed all these people? It just seems like Jesus is constantly putting his disciples in desperate situations, which follows in line with what God did in the Old Testament. Now as we go through John chapter 6 over the next few weeks you're going to find that the story that John chapter 6 parallels what Moses did in the Exodus. You remember the old story, the story in the Old Testament about Moses delivering the children of Israel, crossing the Red Sea, the God bringing bread down from heaven. All of that is replayed in John chapter six. But I want you to consider with me how God continually put his people in desperate situations in that story. Because in verse 13, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 18, it says this, so God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. Do you remember this that that the children of Israel have are fleeing from Egypt, the soldiers are behind them, and the Bible says that God led them to the Red Sea and the sea was in front of them, the Egyptian army was behind them, and they were in a lot of trouble. They were in a desperate situation. What's so important about that is that they didn't get there because they didn't have GPS. They got there because God led them into that desperate situation. In uh, Deuteronomy 8, Moses says to the children of Israel, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness for these 40 years. In other words, the children of Israel didn't wander around in the desert for 40 years because they were lost. They wandered around in the desert for 40 years because God led them in the desert for 40 years. And here's what it says, the reason. He did this to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. You see throughout this entire story, God puts the children of Israel in desperate situations. He leads them in the desert. They don't have any water to drink. So they cry out, oh God, we're going to die in the desert because we don't have any water to drink. And what does God do? He brings water out of a rock. And then there's in the next, very next chapter. Oh, God, we're going to die in the desert because we don't have any food. And what does God do? He causes bread to rain down out of heaven. It's almost as if God continually puts his people in desperate situations in order that his glory may be revealed through those circumstances. And Jesus does the same thing to the disciples. So he's led them up on this mountain. There's this huge crowd of people that's following them. And Jesus asked the question, Philip, where shall we buy bread? For all these people to eat. Verse seven, Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have one bite. Now, Philip's reply is exactly what we would expect. Where would we get that kind of money? And my guess is that is some of your first question, too. That an impossible situation comes up, and the first thing your brain does is it goes to the checking account balance. Well, I would do what God's calling me to do, except my checking account only has $4.32 in it. And this is exactly what Philip did. That, that he, God, Jesus asked him this question, and Philip immediately turns and says, how would we ever have enough money to do that? That is impossible. Here's what's interesting, is Philip is not even the group's treasurer. That was Judas's job. Now, I know that's a slight to accountants. I'm sorry. I don't mean that to any of you who are in accounting. It, Judas was the, was, the, was the accountant for the group. So Jesus was not asking Philip how to pay for the bread. That was somebody else's responsibility. Jesus would have addressed that question to somebody else. Jesus asked Philip, a very specific question. Where will we get it? Now, listen to this, because I love, I love Andrew. Andrew is one of those minor characters, one of those minor disciples you don't hear a lot about. But every time Andrew's a part of the story, there is something so sincere about the faith of Andrew. And he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. Every story that involves Andrew involves Andrew bringing somebody to Jesus. Listen to what happens next. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Now, Philip didn't have any, or Andrew didn't have any more faith than Philip had, but he did try to answer the question that Jesus asked. Because remember, Jesus' question wasn't, how are we going to pay for this? Jesus' question was, where are we going to get it? And so Andrew sees the potential Now, this is is so big. Andrew sees the potential provision in the very child that appears to be creating the need. Anybody else would have looked at this kid and said, this kid is part of the problem because there are 15,000 hungry people and he is one of them. Andrew didn't see that. Instead, what Andrew saw was that this child potentially... Even though it was meager, even though it wasn't much, maybe Jesus can do something with this. And then look what happened in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish, verse 12, when they had all had enough to eat. He said to his disciples... Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. It's it's an amazing story. And John almost reports it like it's just everyday business. This is just what happens when you trust Jesus with just five barley loaves and two fish. Now, there's so much in this passage that we don't have time to look at today. Several years ago, we actually looked at this passage uh, in a series that we did called Tables, and and we talked about the significance of the 12 baskets, and and there's there's so much rich symbolism here, but at the heart of all of it, what John wants you to know is that God sometimes provides for us through the very circumstances we believe is creating the need. That sometimes God's provision for you is found in the desperate situation in which you feel like you have been placed. And we're going to come back to that in a minute because that is a big, big idea. But, but I, want to, I want to do it by looking at these three people who had an encounter with Jesus in this story. Because, because back, if you remember, uh, back in verse 6, uh, when, Philip, when, Philip, uh, when he, Jesus asked Philip the question, where are we going to buy the bread, it, John told us that he only asked this because he was testing him. And I want to say this too, that that I believe that perhaps your desperate situation, whatever your circumstances, perhaps Jesus is using it to test you as well. And each of these three characters that interact with Jesus, Philip, Andrew, and this little boy, raise a really important question that challenges my faith. And, And as I've wrestled with this and I've considered these questions in my own life, I want to share them with you because I think they're important for you to wrestle with these as well. First of all, Philip. Philip was minding his own business, and Jesus sort of thrust on him the problem of feeding 15,000 hungry people. And here's the question that I have for you when we consider Philip's response. Are you allowing a perceived lack of resources to prevent you from experiencing God? Now, that's a big question. And, and I, this has nothing to do with how much or how little money you have in your savings account and your ira this and this has nothing to do with something that i'm getting i'm going to ask you for this has nothing to do with that this has everything to do with the fact that isn't it true that no matter how much money you have you never have enough that there's always this sense inside of you that that well if if we, we just get a little more margin a little more security a little more comfort but but here's what happens when we face the needs that are so prevalent around us we are always overwhelmed by the need we look and we see big issues of global poverty and and the need for clean drinking water and, and even with our own community, the needs that you may drive by every day and you think I'm just one person and I don't have enough to solve the problem and I just wonder if you, like I have done so many times, are allowing what you believe is a lack of resources to prevent you from experiencing a miracle that God may have in store because that's what Philip was doing. Philip did that very thing. And, and it framed the way he heard Jesus. Because Jesus asked, Where can we buy? But Philip heard, Do you have enough money to buy? And those are very different questions. But sometimes because we have this idea in our mind that we're not talented enough, we're not smart enough, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough experience, we don't have enough resources, whatever it is, because of a a perception on your part that you don't have enough, you frame everything God may be saying to you in in that idea. And in doing so, you may miss the thing that Jesus is actually saying and also miss the miracle that Jesus may be preparing to perform and miss experiencing God in the midst of it. Philip assumed he was the only one who was going to be responsible to provide the resources to accomplish Jesus' mission. And is it possible that God has led you into a desperate situation to grow your faith and to bring God, glory. Remember what Philip has already seen. Philip has already seen Jesus turn water into wine when there was no wine. Philip has already seen Jesus heal the royal official's son. Philip has already seen Jesus heal the man by the pool of Bethesda and countless other miracles at this point as well. What if Philip had said, Lord, I don't know where or how we can buy enough bread to feed these people, but I believe that you are more than sufficient to meet every one of their needs. Now, it's easy from our perspective to second-guess Philip's response. But how will you respond? How will you respond the next time you're confronted with a need that exceeds your resources? And I'm not saying you're responsible to meet every need that you see, but, but come on, we all know that there are moments in our lives where we're confronted with a need and there's something inside of you that says, I think I'm supposed to do something about that. I think I'm supposed to do something about that need. And yet we don't respond because we limit God's ability to provide by saying, I don't have enough. When you hear Jesus asking you to meet a need, resist saying that there is not enough. Instead, remember that he is always enough. Because after all, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. If it's God's will... It's God's bill. God will always provide in order for his will to be accomplished. But it requires us to reach the end of our own resources and recognize the only way this is going to happen is if I have the faith that God will do it. Because God is most glorified in me when I am most desperate for him. Now let's look at Andrew, because Andrew raises a really important question for us as well. Andrew, the question that came to my mind when I thought about Andrew is this, is do you see potential provision in the need? Do you see a way in which God may actually be providing through the very need itself? See, hungry crowds are not a new problem for God. When the children of Israel were in need of bread in the wilderness, God sent bread down from heaven. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan, do you remember what Satan said? Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and and Satan tempted Jesus. He said, hey, you could, remember what he said Jesus could turn into bread? What was it? Anybody remember? Yeah, you could turn the rocks into bread. Now, take that idea and bring that into this story. Jesus could very easily could have turned every stone that was in that field. Remember, it was a mountainside, so there would have been rocks everywhere. Jesus could have very easily turned every stone into bread and fed 15,000 people, right? I mean, he could have done that. We already have evidence in the Bible that Jesus could have turned stone into bread if he wanted to because Satan said, hey, you could do this if you want, and Jesus said no. So why didn't Jesus choose to feed the people by miraculously turning the stones into bread? Because I believe that Jesus is constantly seeking to use his people to meet the needs of others. That Jesus is working through the limited resources of those who are committed to him and follow him in faith to meet the bigger needs. When Cherry and I were um, uh, serving a small church in Texas, uh, we decided one year that we were going to do this big Thanksgiving celebration there were a lot of uh, migrant workers that lived in this little town, and it was a very desperately poor town. The church we were serving was mainly uh, lower to lower middle class families. They didn't have much. Uh, the migrant workers that were living in this community were often found themselves in desperate situations, but, and many people in the church didn't have a whole lot more than the migrant workers. But we decided one year, hey, let's do a big Thanksgiving feast and let's invite all the migrant workers that live in town to come. The problem was none of us really knew how many migrants lived in the town because uh, many of them, uh, you know, tried, they, they tried to avoid it being counting because many of them were, were not legal, uh, legal in the country. But they were working in the farms and working in the fields. So we decided, we set up this event, we set up the night, uh, the little choir put a little program together and we, we decided that we are going to serve them a full Thanksgiving meal and we are going to have one little gift for each of the children that came through and we had no idea what was going to happen because the, the, the place was packed and pretty soon the line went outside of the little elementary school cafeteria and outside the building and, and I rem- I'll never forget st- going back to the food line and being there with the, one of the ladies her name was Diane Ballard and she actually worked in the school cafeteria and she was a member at our church and so she had volunteered here to run the kitchen. And with every scoop of potatoes, she was praying, Lord, just let the potatoes last one more time. Just let the <laughs> potatoes last one more time. So, so we got to the end of this event. There was one turkey leg left over and everybody who wanted mashed potatoes had been given mashed potatoes. Now there would be, some people would say, well, that was, that was brilliant logistical planning. Anybody who would have said that did not know us or this church because there was no way (laughs) that we were that smart. Everybody knew that this was just a miracle that God had provided, that God had done some amazing things as people in that church stepped out on faith. And here's what's so interesting. The, The migrant community was blessed, absolutely, but God, God blessed the people who participated in that in significant ways and grew their faith, and it happened through a desperate situation. And God provided for the need. And as I reflect back on that little church, I am so often reminded that God's generosity is best reflected through the poverty of His people. That God so often provides what we need through the very people He sends us to reach. So rather than seeing this boy, and with his lunch is just another mouth to feed. Jesus shows how this little boy's offering, just this little tiny lunch that he had, how it could be used to meet the needs of the entire crowd. Now, and this doesn't take away from Jesus' miracle at all. Actually, what it, what it reminds us of is that God chooses to use average, ordinary, limited people to do miraculous things so that only he gets the glory. Because let's face it, if we had enough money, if we had enough t- intelligence, if we had enough talent, God wouldn't get the glory for it. But God is always glorified when we find ourselves in a def- desperate situation. And finally, the little boy. The little boy who brought his lunch. And it, it's an important question that... that that I've struggled with this week. And I've got the privilege this week to spend, um, to spend time with, uh, with our, some of our children who went to Center Kid Camp and to, to be reminded why Jesus said, unless you come to me with the faith of a child, you cannot have a part of the kingdom. Because kids have faith in ways that sometimes as adults, the world kind of takes it away from us. This little boy uh, had a significant faith as well. And the question that, that it posed to me is this, are you willing to surrender what you have for God's purpose are you willing to surrender what you have for God's purpose and you may be thinking you know what I don't have much and sometimes the fact that we don't have much causes us to hold on to it even tighter I mean we, we we get even more possessive about it but the question is with all due apologies to any copyright infringements what's in your lunchbox and, and you think oh, it's not much and sometimes we have the opinion, well, God is constantly the bully in the playground who's trying to steal my lunch. I don't have much, and he's trying to take what I have. But this story reminds us that when we willingly surrender what little we have, God miraculously provides for not only your needs, but for the needs of people around you that you didn't think you had enough resources to meet. You see, your insignificant contribution surrendered to Jesus is Always sufficient. But so many times we disqualify ourselves by saying, oh, it's just so insignificant. It doesn't matter. I mean, the little bit of time that I have to give won't make a difference. The little bit of money that I have, it won't matter. The little bit of experience I have, the, the little bit of education, the little bit of knowledge, it won't make any difference at all. But look at the story of this little boy and his faith. Jesus took just this little lunch, and not only did the boy end, end up eating, 15,000 or more people ended up eating as well. And it made me think uh, of a story. You know, when, when, when Sherry and I and our family, when we came to Southside in 2008, um, it was right at the front edge of the financial crisis. And the church was, was really already in a pretty difficult situation anyway, and then that really made it worse. And um, there were serious questions financially about whether Southside would, would survive. And in the midst of that, right in the middle of that, God chose to put Southside in a desperate situation, just like God put Philip in this desperate situation. And he did it by, bring, by all of a sudden, out of nowhere, beginning to bring these, uh, these Burmese refugees into our community and into our church. And they came in with all kinds of needs. Uh, they, they, they were needing not just financial assistance, but they, they, were, needing, um, they were needing time of people to, to help get them to doctors. They were needing all kinds of things. And there were, there were serious questions in the church to say, do we don't have enough. We're not sure we're even going to make it as an organization. How can we take the little we have and invest it over here? How will, how, how will that happen? But because of the faith of people, Much like Andrew and much like this little boy who said, here's the need, and if it's God's will, it's God's bill. Southside just slowly began to meet the need and do the next right thing and do the next right thing and meet the needs. And now, seven years later, God has not only... Uh, blessed the Corin people who celebrated the third anniversary last Sunday of their church. They, they run over 250. The church is thriving. They are ministering not only to new Corin that come into town, but they're ministering to other refugees that come into town. But not only did God bless them, God blessed Southside Baptist Church. And you look back at the books and it doesn't make any sense. You can't figure it out on a spreadsheet But here's what I know, whenever we are in a desperate situation, God can be glorified if we'll just have the faith to trust him, to trust him. And if it doesn't make sense, it may even more validate the fact that perhaps this is something God is leading us to do. And so my question for you today, and I don't know because it, it, it has nothing to do with, with uh, money. It has nothing to do uh, necessarily, it has nothing necessarily to do with time. It may be any one of those things. It may be all of those things. But my question for you is what is the desperate situation in which you have found yourself? And what would it look like to believe that God is enough? What would it look like for you in a marriage relationship that you feel like isn't going to make it if you believed that by putting your faith in Christ, by living the principles that he showed us, that, 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 that perhaps, perhaps Jesus who died to reconcile the world to himself could reconcile a broken marriage? What would it be like if you believed that that, that, that need that you see in our community that God is calling you to open up your lunchbox and give the little bit you have, what would that look like? What would that do for your faith? What would that do for the kingdom? How would God be glorified? Because God is most glorified in you when you are most desperate for him. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we come to you today and we just acknowledge that no matter how much we have, no matter how little we have, it is insignificant and it is insufficient to meet the needs that we see. And Father, while it's a difficult truth and reality to consider, it appears through the Bible, Old and New Testament, that you Put your people in desperate situations to test their faith, but also to bring glory to yourself. And so, Father, I pray for those who are here today, and maybe they're stuck in their faith. Maybe they feel like they're they're distant from you. Maybe, God, maybe today you'd reveal to them that that there's something, an opportunity that you've given them to see your glory in a new way. And yet, maybe, Lord, they're unwilling, unwilling to trust you, With their lunch. God, would you move inside of each of our hearts? Would you give us the faith of Andrew to say, Lord, it's not much, but there is this boy with this lunch? Would you give us the faith of the boy to say, I don't know how I'll eat if I give this away, but you can take what I have and see what you can do with it? Would you give Southside Baptist Church the faith to believe that as we give ourselves away, that you meet every need we have and the needs of the people around us in miraculous and amazing ways. Lord, we've seen it. We've seen it in our lifetimes. We've seen it just in recent years, how quickly we forget. God, I would even be so bold to pray, would you make us desperate for you, that you'd be glorified in us and that our faith would grow deeper. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.